in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. Welcome to Rob Kane's Ancient Rome Refocus. History for the Brave. Hi, everybody. This is Rob Kane. Welcome to Season 2 of Ancient Rome Refocused. Today we have an interview with Dr. Carl J. Richard. He's going to talk to us about his book, Why We're All Romans. So stay with us, and I think you'll enjoy it. I want to apologize for our hotline being out. I have since corrected the problem, and if you want to leave a message, just call 855-209-6230. The number is 855-209-6230. This time, rather than relying on a free message service, I've hooked into a business line. I want your comments, your observations, and just what you think about ancient Rome or something that happened today and any comparisons that you may want to make. Hey, Rob, this is Patrick in California. Say, I was wondering, they describe assassinations in in, um, Rome when they talk about Caesar being assassinated and other people being assassinated, they talk about people throwing their cloak up over their head. And I was wondering, is there some cultural significance to this? It seems like a, it's like an odd reaction for somebody who's being attacked. Do you have any insights on this? Head covering does have some religious significance. The Talmud, which is not my expertise, but it states, Cover your head in order that the fear of heaven may be upon you. Many of the Jewish faiths wear a kippah, as explained by Rabbi Abraham Shimtoth, as worn at, and it's, this is the quote, the highest point of our being on our head, the vessel of our intellect, to tell ourselves in the world that there's something which is above man's intellect, which is the infinite wisdom of God, unquote. Head covering is not just practiced by the Jews, but the clergy and Roman Catholicism and Buddhists. The Romans covered their heads during religious practices and during festivals. It was a sign of reverence and respect for the gods. Even their priests, the flamen, wore a hat with an olive wood spike on the top, tied on with a wool cap. There was a sculpture of Augustus with his head covered to denote his pious and religious nature. Does that explain why Caesar covered his face after being stabbed repeatedly? It could have been a religious response of some sort, but more than likely, he wanted to die alone and without others witnessing his pain. I believe there's a quote attributed to Caesar when someone asked him, how would you like to die? I think his answer was, quickly. And the death he experienced was anything but quick. I think I would cover my face as well. Better to suffer alone than to have your attacker laugh in your face. By the way, There's a bunch of people I would like to thank for a lively discussion that wound up on the Facebook page. It got so interesting I moved it over to the blog. It all started when I was sitting in front of Starbucks and a thought crossed my head, which is a fairly large head. I imagined what it would be like to be in the U.S. if it fell like the Roman Empire. So I mused on that on Facebook. And I got so many people writing in, I moved it over to the blog. I titled it The Fall of the U.S. Empire, and a lot of you jumped in with your opinions. I happened to think it was a healthy interchange of information, and the opinions came from all over the world. Thanks to Joey Hill, Bradley Holland, Antonio Rodriguez, C.J. Johnson, and Barry M. 
And I also like to thank Michaela, who was kind enough to call in on the last show. She um, did a entry which was a, ver a very wonderful argument on the dispossessed in empire then and today. You should read it. When you talk about the subject, many lines of thought appear. People, politics, of course, and the rise and fall of cultures. Michaela writes, Empires are built on ideas, relative freedom, and on even the lowliest members believing they have a stake in that empire because it benefits them and in turn values them on some level. Unquote. Barry M. wrote something that I immediately honed in on because, frankly, it emphasizes my personal belief that America is due for its own golden age. Quote, Perhaps we're at a breather where again we will forge ahead to new accomplishments. Unquote. I hope so, Barry. I hope so. If you want to join in on the discussion, go to the blog site at http colon forward slash forward slash ancient rome refocused dot org ancient rome refocused is one word look for the blog entry the fall of the u.s empire i want to hear from you what do you think give us your comments join the discussion the show still seems to be growing and i'm grateful to everyone if you like the show please help me out and post your support on itunes this is Season 2, Episode 7. This podcast is titled, Washington Wore a Toga. We are in Philadelphia. It is hot. The type of heat and humidity that clings to your clothes. Outside in the street, horses and people walk along in a slow, lazy-like pace. To hurry in this kind of weather can bring death, and it has. People and horse have been known to collapse, and the heart to stop. Local doctors advise, find a tree, sit, and wait it out for the cool of the dusk. But if you're a working man, that is hard to do. The State House of Pennsylvania might as well be a palace. People have been known to come in from the countryside just to gawk at it. Tall windows, red brick, and high steeple is an attraction to those that have nothing but a shack or a four-room farmhouse. If it is a palace, 
the men that sit inside are the courtiers, and some say the gestures as well, especially that fellow Ben Franklin. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, he has been known to say. Men quote him in taverns and on corners of streets, laugh and nod at each other, and under the humor it rings true, especially with the obvious troubles in Boston. People gawk at the representatives of the colonies who sit inside, and more than once, children have been chased away from the windows. And they are something to see. A collection of highfalutin patricians, the schoolteacher once called them. And to look at them, it's not hard to compare. Twenty-four lawyers and jurists, eleven merchants, nine farmers, and large plantation owners. Men of means, wealth, and intellect. Many were slave owners. I bring this up to make a point, that this was another comparison between them and the Romans. The Roman economy depended on slavery. The founding fathers felt their economy depended on slavery as well. The only difference is, Roman slavery was equal opportunity. It was open to all, but colonial slavery depended on one color. This government that was about to be set up would pay for the evil of slavery in later years to the tune of 620,000 lives to be lost on both sides. Like the Romans, they owned vast estates. They are kings on their own lands. They were absolute rulers carved out of a wilderness, and the wilderness was huge. Their kingdoms can be identified by the great house, or what the Romans called the villa. Of course, some houses are greater than others. Some may even border on the simple. The Romans took great stake in the offices they held. It was called the cursus honorum, the line of offices expected in one's rise, and the members of that Congress reflect the Romans in that as well. Two served as president of the Continental Congress. Fifty-five had experience in colonial, state government, and local offices. This Congress put a great stake in the practice of law, and thirty-five had legal training. So Cicero was a familiar subject in the corridors, or over a drink at the local tavern. This law, my lords, is not a written, but an innate law. We have not been taught it by the learned. We have not received it from our ancestors. We have not taken it from books. It is derived from nature, and stamped in invisible characters upon our very frame. It was not conveyed by instruction, but wrought into our constitution. It is the dictate of instinct. There cannot be one law now and another hereafter, but the same internal immutable law comprehends all nations at all times under one common master and governor of all. This should sound familiar. It sounds a little bit like we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unalienable rights. These men had various talents. Some studied the stars. They cataloged the wilderness. They made their own furniture, they wrote books, made their own wine. All of them valued education. 
They read about the Greeks and the Romans, and in the end, they made their own government. Who said, Necessity is the mother of invention? A man that the majority would have been familiar with, Plato. Necessity drives these men, and they would be familiar with this maxim, for they would have practiced it. For necessity is a common companion in a wilderness. Most would have read Plato, either parts or all of his work called The Republic, a work on philosophy and political theory. Many, you could say, sat at the feet of Plato, and some tried to emulate him, like Franklin, a colonial philosopher, if there ever was one, who said, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. What could have been more true than the Declaration of Independence that came from this governing body? The founding fathers admired the Spartan, but abhorred their lack of individuality. Sparta is nothing more than a well-regulated camp, said Alexander Hamilton. The founding fathers turned to the Romans for inspiration, and no one should have wondered at it. Latin was king in the churches, the law, and the sciences. Some were self-taught. Now, don't knock self-taught education with someone determined enough, for Franklin and Washington were in that number. Others received education through tutors or at academies. Half the men in that Congress attended or graduated college. Don't knock simple attendance at college, for this was the time where few of the population could have attended. At least one year or two was enough to set you apart. Some had medical degrees or advanced training in theology. Even a few lawyers were trained in London, the Rome of its day, and were equally familiar with the classics and the great advocate Cicero. These men supped at the table of Herodotus, Thucydides, Demosthenes, Polybius, Sallust, Livy, Plutarch, Tacitus, and Suetonius. And of course Cicero. You can't forget Cicero. John Adams was Cicero's greatest fan and practiced his oratories, reading them aloud, and upon rising in rebuttal to John Dickerson's assertion that independence was too soon, wished for the talents and eloquence of the ancient orators of Greece and Rome. The founding fathers were the children of antiquity. Numerous editions of Polybius's history sat in Jefferson's library. Listen to this quote about the division of powers in government. Polybius. Such being the power that each part has of hampering the others or cooperating with them, their union is adequate to all emergencies. So that it is impossible to find a better political system than this. For when one part, having grown out of proportion to the others, aims at supremacy, and tends to become too predominant, it is evident that none of the three is absolute. But the purpose of the one can be counterworked and thwarted by the others. None of them will excessively outgrow the others or treat them with contempt. All, in fact, remains in status quo. On the one hand, because of any aggressive impulse is sure to be checked, and from the outset, each estate stands in dread of being interfered with by the others. Polybius Madison cites Polybius in the Federal Papers. Passages of Polybius would be recited from the floor of the Virginia State Convention for the ratification of the Federal Constitution. And even the wit of Franklin was taxed when he rose in despair from his chair, probably for a bit of air, upon seeing the Constitutional Convention of June 28th, degenerate into a meeting of classical students topping each other with quotes rather than taking care of the serious business of forming a nation. Some are intellectuals, 
some practical men of business, some lawyers and judges and leaders of men, leaders of men. From these men would spring forth their own Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a farmer that was given dictatorship in order to save the Republic, and then he gave it up and returned to being a farmer afterwards. Who gives up absolute power when handed it? Well, Washington, for one, who stood in front of Congress and laid down his commission when the crisis was averted. King George grudgingly admired him and said, They say he will return to his farm. If he does, he will be called the greatest man in the world. These men were about to sign a document that would stand up to the strongest empire in the world. There are only a couple of places I can think of where men like these could derive strength from. The Bible and the classics. They would need it. They were about to experience their own version of the Persian Wars, their own invasion of Hannibal's armies. It was not hard to make a comparison of the juggernaut of the British armies to the armies of Darius or even of that of Hannibal. The colonists imagined themselves the beginning of an early Roman Republic. They would have to move quickly. Imagine this. Listen. Listen. Can you hear it? For off in the distance you can hear a sprightly tune. It starts at a distance. From your position you see redcoats and flags waving in the distance. It's like a parade, but it's a deadly one. At least 500 to 600 men, a full-strength British regiment in perfect formation, marching to a tune with rifle and long bayonet. Strangely enough, red is the color of a Roman legion. In the midst of the smoke and confusion of the battlefield, you always know where your lines are located. It has to be red. In an age of necessity, war requires the massing of firepower. Fire. Fire. Fire! The men on your left and right go down. The chances are they might be okay. The velocity of the musket ball is not as fast as it would be in later conflicts. There is a chance they're suffering from broken bones. And if a vein was missed or an artery, then the ball could possibly dug out with a surgeon's knife. The blessedness of morphine is not available yet. And a soldier's right to bite the surgeon's mouth guard is what stifles the screams. A British regiment is a machine. Each of the men are taught not to stop. And it comes at you. And as a foot soldier of the Continental Army, you've never seen anything like it before. The British Army can be seen at a distance. It plays music so you can hear them coming. A Roman Legion wants you to see them coming, to see them move as a machine as well. The British Regiment is no different. You want to run. You would like to run. The British are hoping that you will. The line of redcoats are about to send out a volley of fire. They have practiced it over and over again. And it's going to kick out like a cannonball. Each soldier is trained to the high precision fire of five shots per 60 seconds. 
But in that age, that was the high state of technology. If you could stand up to that, meaning a bullet failing to hit you, then there was the terror of the bayonet charge. You may wonder why I went into such detail on standard warfare that century. I mean, what does it have to do with the Romans and the founding fathers anyway, right? Well, I did it for a reason, for you to try to understand what was at stake. Too many history books talk in broad terms. A battle was fought, so many men were killed. You have to understand what the Founding Fathers were signing their names to. Yes, a principle, a declaration of independence, and the possibility of disaster falling on their heads. Parallels will be made, and the early Republic would seek its own Elysia, their own Thermopylae. After all, a massive empire was coming their way, and all they had was a small band of determined men to hold them. The men of Concord will step up, the men of Boston as well. I will take a bet there was at least one of the Founding Fathers that upon signing the Declaration of Independence muttered the following words, I have crossed the Rubicon. There was no turning back, and many would pay the price. These men would have to run for their lives. Some would be jailed, some would have their families jailed as well. Would you sign your name to a document on a principle? Something would have to inspire you to do it. Yes, the Bible, of course. But also men like Polybius, Sallust, Libby, Plutarch, Tacitus, and Suetonius. And of course Cicero. You can't forget Cicero. We have an interview with Professor Carl Richard. He has written a book called Why We Are All Romans, subtitled The Roman Contribution to the Western World. His books include The Founders and the Classics, Greece, Rome, and the American Enlightenment, 1994, Twelve Greeks and Romans Who Changed the World, 2003, The Battle for the American Mind, A Brief History of the Nation's Thought, 2004, Greeks and Romans Bearing Gifts, how the Ancients Inspired the Founding Fathers, 2008, and the Golden Age of Classics in America, Greece, Rome, and the Antebellum United States, 2009. So let's go to the interview. In your book, I read the line which said something like, Polybius agreed with Aristotle that the best constitution assigned approximately equal amounts of power to the three orders of society. I couldn't help but thinking of her own government, the judicial, the executive, and the legislative. Is it possible that there was some founding father read this from a Latin text and formulated an idea of a new American republic? Oh, yes. I mean, they definitely were influenced by um, not only Aristotle, but 
Polybius and Cicero and many of the uh, ancients who talked about mixed government. And by mixed government, they meant a balance of power between the one, the few, and the many. King or the leader, executive, uh, the the rich, the well-born on the one hand, and the uh, masses on the other hand, the one, the few, and the many. And, uh, and they, the founders definitely had that in mind when they wrote the Constitution because they created a balance between the one, the president, who's kind of a king, a limited king, but still a king, uh, and uh, the Senate, which was designed to represent or protect the rich from uh, being plundered by the masses, uh, the Senate would, would do that. And in the House, which uh, was supposed to be a so-called democratic branch, the branch that would represent the masses. What do you teach at your school? Well, I mostly teach American history, but also teach uh, history of Greece and Rome, which is an unusual combination. Uh, but most of my research has been the influence of Greece and Rome in America, so it makes sense. The title of your book is How We Are All Romans. Well, if we are all Romans, then were the Romans Greek? Well, the Romans certainly uh, received many ideas from the Greeks. The Greeks were an older civilization and more advanced in many ways. And um, early on, they, they ran into the Greeks in southern Italy. The Greeks had colonized southern Italy. And uh, they got many things early on, including the alphabet, that same alphabet we use today, which is called the modern Latin. There's been a few changes, but it's mostly the Latin alphabet. They got that from the Greeks. They got many things from the Greeks. Uh, but but one thing I emphasize in the book uh, is that they didn't just adopt these ideas. They adapted them. They adapted them. They brought them down to earth. And then, of course, they spread them throughout their vast empire. So uh, the title, Why We're, we're All Romans, is based on uh, Percy Shelley, who said we're the British poet who said we are all Greeks. And I don't dispute that. I think so many of our ideas are Greek. But I put a twist on it and say uh, we're all Romans because it's the Romans who not only adopted those ideas but adapted them, brought them down to earth, and then spread them throughout the uh, throughout Western Europe. And so if not for the Romans, it's the Romans who made us all Greek in a sense. So that's the reason for the title. In your book, you write that you hope to demonstrate the surprising ways in which we modern Westerners are indeed still Romans. Could you share with us some examples of how this is true? Yes, I think in many ways, Americans especially, this uh, we're much like the Romans in terms of our pragmatism, uh, uh, traditionally you know, hard work, uh, discipline. You know, some people think those things are breaking down, but historically. Americans have been that way. And there are other things, too. I mean, I, I can't help but laugh when I read some of the um, Romans. Uh, uh, there's so many of them that are complaining by the first century A.D. that the people are getting soft and too, uh, uh, there's too much luxury and uh, people are just getting soft. And it's, it's so much like uh, what we hear today. Uh, and there are other things, too, the uh, things that you wouldn't, uh, necessarily think about, but for instance, for instance, their passion about sports. Uh, of course, they had you know gladiatorial combat, very violent uh, form of entertainment, uh, much more violent even than the uh, forms of entertainment we have. 
but very passionate about the, the sport they were most passionate about was chariot racing. And when you read about how passionate they were, uh, either for the blue team or the green team, it reminds me a lot of uh, American men, especially in our uh, passion about our favorite teams. Uh, all kinds of things like that, things that you would not uh, think of, but when you read the ancient Roman text, they, they come up. Uh, there's one about uh, global warming. Uh, Columella, the agriculture, Roman agricultural writer, uh, writes in, in his work that, uh, you know, everybody knows that uh, it's getting warmer. The last generation, it's getting warmer. And he thinks that's a good thing because it leads to more uh, food production and and uh, and so on. And uh, so, you know, you find little things like that you don't expect to find. It's interesting. And then some things are just uh, basic humanity. It's things that all people share. There's a marvelous letter, letter from Pliny the Younger to a friend of his about a mutual friend who has lost his daughter. She passed away um, at 12 or 13, I think. And it's just a heartbreaking letter. Uh, so there are some things that I guess are just universal. From your study of the ancient Romans, is there anything going on today you wish to warn us about? Well, uh, one thing that strikes me in, in the late Roman Empire is um, the, the, they increased taxes, but beyond that, when that failed to meet the needs because they were just spending like crazy, the government was, they began devaluing the currency. And by the end of the Roman Empire, the currency was was so worthless that even the Roman government wasn't taking it in taxes. They were demanding goods, you know, uh, back to a barter system virtually because they had so devalued the coinage. Uh, the so-called silver coins no longer had any silver in them and the gold coins no longer had any gold in them. And I can't help but uh, notice that in the last couple of years, the Federal Reserve has printed $2 trillion in currency. Well, I shouldn't say printed. They just they don't print it anymore. They just say it exists. And, uh, you know, that's uh, a concern. I think military power follows economic power. And so I think if our economic power declines because of too much debt or uh, too much devaluation or, or whatever, that this is going to impact our military power just as it did Rome. What influence did Cicero have on the Founding Fathers? Well, Cicero, I think, may have been the most influential of all the ancients. And I say that, and this is a big theme in my book, I say that because the educational system throughout medieval and modern Europe and America was so heavily focused on Latin not much more than Greek. They did take a little bit of Greek, but it was mostly Latin. And so Cicero was, of course, the greatest uh, Latin writer, at least of prose. I guess Virgil was the greatest poet, but Cicero was the greatest writer of prose, and he was a politician. He was interested in political theory. And so uh, what they read from Cicero was all about the foundational principles of our political system. Popular sovereignty, you know, this idea that... Uh, that the, the people, uh, government is by the consent of the governed. Natural law, this idea that there's a universal right and wrong, which is where we get natural rights from, the idea that the individual has rights. And we mentioned mixed government. It was a third idea. These were all Greek ideas. Cicero did not invent them. He just, uh, he, he just put them into Latin. 
and uh, into a very beautiful Latin uh, that was very powerful. And so I think it's through Cicero that the founders got in touch with all these Greek ideas uh, and, and then incorporated them into our political system. I saw a movie about John Enns where Abigail Adams was teaching her children Latin. How were the Romans incorporated into early education? Why was it important for children in our early republic to know their early republic? Yes, well, the, the system, educational system, goes, went back to the Middle Ages, and it was dominated by Greek and Latin, but especially Latin. There was a little bit of Greek thrown in, but it was mostly Latin. And in fact, this term grammar school, which we, you know, we familiar with the term grammar school uh, for uh, as a synonym for elementary school, uh, that actually, they didn't refer to English grammar, it referred to Latin grammar, uh, Latin and Greek, mostly Latin. Uh, so, uh, you know, you went to school not to study English, they didn't add English uh, to the curriculum until after the Revolutionary War, because they thought, well, you know, English is kid stuff, you learn that at home, you come to school to study serious things like uh, Latin and Greek. And so from grammar school all the way through college, the, the educational system was focused on Latin and Greek, especially Latin. And the founders then were immersed in it from childhood days, you know, which has a very powerful effect. Anything that you're immersed in from childhood days will, will have that powerful effect on you. They saw themselves as recreating the Roman Republic in many ways, and that's why they used terms like Senate, which is a uh, Roman term. And uh, Only this time they thought they had a greater chance of success. They were going to uh, recreate the Roman Republic, but this time it would last. That's how they looked at it. What is the state of classical study in the U.S. today? Well, it's interesting because I think the scholarship has probably never been better. I mean, it's never been more advanced. We've never known more, I think, uh, than today about the Romans. Uh, but the level of popular knowledge is much lower than in the days of the founding fathers. Uh, their whole educational system was on Latin and Greek. Roman history was very popular. So they knew uh, an awful lot about uh, the Romans that the public doesn't know today. Uh, I think most people today, their knowledge of uh, Rome and, and of Greece is based on films. And of course, films can be very entertaining and so on, but they're not always that accurate. Um, and so, you know, films like Gladiator and uh, uh, in the case of Greece, the 300, and, uh, then you have miniseries uh, like the Rome miniseries. And they learn some things, I think, from from these films and miniseries, but uh, there's also uh, a lot of liberties taken. Is there a Roman attitude about the world that Americans seem to have? Well, Americans do. Uh, for a long time, I think Americans have had this feeling that it's natural for the United States to be the world leader. And Romans felt that way. They felt there was... Uh, uh, Rome was... Uh, protected and guided by the gods, and so even even when the Romans lost a battle, even a major battle, uh, like to Hannibal, for instance, uh, there was always this sense that well, the gods may just be trying to humble us, but they're really on our side, and and uh, it's natural uh, for 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 us to be the leaders of the of the world, uh, and 
uh, I forget who it was, one of the Roman authors who said, uh, I think it was Livy, the Roman historian, who said it is, na- it is as natural for Romans to win battles as for water to go downhill. And I think there's, there's long been that sense uh, by Americans, at least in the 20th and 21st centuries, that it's we're uh, uh, the natural leaders of the world. And, uh, of course, as we talked about earlier, that can change. Uh, uh, you know, countries or empires can go downhill. Uh, but I think that's one common attitude, I think. Do you think that Roman attitude is where we as Americans got the idea of manifest destiny? There is a kind of manifest destiny with the Romans. And uh, as, as I just mentioned, they really believed the gods were behind them. They were enormously ritualistic, and I think that's something that went into the Roman Catholic Church, uh, an inheritance there. And part of that was they thought if we do the rituals exactly right, uh, God's will bless us. And so they were extremely, they had a ritual for everything, even just having a meal, there was a ritual. And if you, if you messed something up, you would go back to the beginning, even if it was, uh, the ritual was hours long. And it's, but it was all tied up in this belief that the gods were behind them. And I think uh, we see this throughout American history as well, that God, singular, is behind us. How is your book doing? I don't really know. I haven't gotten the royalty statement from last year, which we came out last year. Uh, but it has been adopted by the History Book Club. And in the past, I had another book uh, called Greeks and Romans Bearing Gifts, which was adopted by the History Book Club, and that seems to do well for sales, so I'm hopeful. Are you working on something else that you can share with us? Yes, it's uh, it's uh, completely different. I mean, I've published six books thus far, and all of them have been about Greece and Rome and the influence of Greece and Rome, and this book has nothing to do with that. Uh, I'm finishing up a book manuscript, which is uh, basically an adaptation of my master's thesis from a long time ago. It's called When the United States Invaded Russia, Doughboys in Siberia, 1918 to 1920. Uh, Woodrow Wilson sent roughly 8,000 American troops to Siberia uh, in 1918, and the goal was to help the anti-Bolsheviks overthrow the Soviet government in hopes of recreating the Russian front against the Germans in World War One. But even after the uh, Germans were defeated, the soldiers stayed there for about a year and a half just trying to overthrow the Soviet government in its infancy. And it's a very interesting story. I mean, it was uh, a, a tragic failure, I would say. Um, it was the first counterinsurgency operation by the United States uh, on foreign soil in the eastern hemisphere. Of course, the United States had often intervened in, in in, in our own hemisphere, but to go across the world and send troops to try to overthrow some other government and keep them there for a year and a half was unprecedented. And, uh, and you know, I think obviously there's a lot of uh, uh, influence, uh, a lot of uh, connection, I think, to things today because we're involved in so many counterinsurgency operations. And so there are obvious questions of, you know, uh, should you intervene in, in other people's civil wars? And uh, if you do, what do you need to do to succeed? Uh, there are a lot of interesting questions there. 
Just one final question. I wonder if there's something you can tell us about the university you teach at? Yes, uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette, we have about uh, six, 16 or 17,000 students. Uh, I think it's the second largest in the state behind LSU. Of course, LSU is twice as big, but um, it's a it's a, a good university. We have a, we don't have a PhD program in history, but we do have a master's, and we often uh, send people uh, they get their master's here and go on to very good programs and get PhDs. And uh, uh, I really enjoy it here. People are very uh, very friendly. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for giving us the time. Uh, that was Dr. Carl J. Richard who wrote the book, Why We're All Romans, The Roman Contribution to the Western World. Sir, you have a good day. Thank you. If you're wondering why we named this podcast Washington War Atoga, well, there's two reasons, really. One is that, is that I wanted to make a reference to the founding fathers using the ancient Romans as their guide, going back to the classics and the, and the Roman principles to set up a new republic. And the other is I actually saw Washington in Atoga. You see, back in the 70s, I was touring the Smithsonian, and I came across a statue. It was of George Washington sitting on a chair in a toga. In one hand was a sword, in the other hand he was pointing up to the heavens. He almost looked like Zeus, or at least someone was trying to portray him as Zeus. This was a statue sculpted by Horatio Greenog. I may not have the pronunciation right, but it's spelled G-R-E-E-N-O-U-G-H and it was put in the Capitol Rotunda around 1841, and it found several different places. At one time, it wound up in the eastern plaza about 500 feet from the Capitol. I think what's interesting about it is the fact is you can find a lot of black-and-white photography of people standing below it, looking up at it in awe with their mouths open. Also, you can see a lot of classes of children, of school children. I couldn't help but to imagine that there had to be some mother or father fielding questions from their child, something along the lines of, Mother, why is that man half-naked? The statue has been called infamous, and some criticism at the time said it looked like Washington was in the bath waiting for his clothes. Now, I think I know where the sculptor was coming from, there's a uh, tradition in Greek art that if you are a hero or a heroine, you are portrayed naked. If you're a goddess, you are naked. It's, it's just a tradition that goes back thousands of years. And it was picked up by other artists as they were decorating the capital. Now, I just want to assure you, our more recent American heroes who have been put into marble all have their clothes on. Washington was to be portrayed as a hero, and thus he got the typical portrayal of uh, ready to stalk out on the battlefield without armor and ready to defend the nation. Unfortunately, this didn't sit well with the American public in the 1800s, and it still doesn't sit very well now. Well, I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, just recently, a 
former attorney general while he was in office, just couldn't stand the fact that the statues behind him when he was giving press conferences were all naked. So he had them covered up with a sheet. Welcome to America. Well, this concludes episode 7 of season 2 of Ancient Rome Refocused. I hope you'll come back for episode 8. If you have any questions, please go to the blog at http colon forward slash forward slash ancientromerefocus.org. Remember, that's one word. If you got something interesting to say, go to the phones and uh, let us know on the hotline what you think. The number is 855-209-6230. That's 855-209-6230. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused. Take care.